Well, good morning, Monument. Am I on? All right. Would you open in your Bibles with me to John chapter 10? If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the, the screen. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter... Oh, check. There it is. Hey. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So good morning, my fellow sheep. We are going to be focused today on the I am statement of Jesus, where he says, I am the door. But for us to understand the critical importance of Jesus being the door, we actually have to humbly accept our role as the sheep in this story. It's hardly the most flattering description the Bible uses, of us, uses to describe us, but with repetitive and drum-like clarity, God refers to us as sheep. So if you've ever asked a child what kind of animal they want to be, you get through a lot of genus and species before you end up at sheep. In fact, there's so many negative literary associations that the dictionary actually describes sheep as a person who is meek, stupid, timid, and submissive. Don't be a sheep means don't follow blindly. Count sheep means think about the most boring animal you can think of to fall asleep. <laughs> a sheep among wolves means you're totally defenseless. So if you've happened to, also if you've happened to see any sheep in social media videos, you're seeing either a sheep that looks ridiculous screaming with a human voice. Have you seen those? Those are amazing. There's another one where a sheep jumps into a crevice, gets pulled out, and then immediately goes and hops into another one. <laughs> we like to give ourselves more credit than being a sheep. But we actually need to take our pill this morning. And see, once again, the Bible makes us put on a fluffy onesie. <laughs> and we have to play the sheep. But we also have to contextualize. So in that time Jesus was talking, there was not the same negative association with sheep. In fact, Probably many of the hearers would have been shepherds. 
they would have had direct experience caring for sheep or even fighting for sheep. Some of the hearers would have been tanned and scarred and leather skinned from being out in the Judean wilderness fighting off predators. So the analogy to the hearers wouldn't have necessarily jumped to a stupid creature or uselessness or weakness. It would have jumped to their livelihood or even their treasure. So in fact, to the hearers, every major figurehead of the Jewish religion, or nearly everyone, was a shepherd. You've got Abraham, who was a shepherd, Isaac, who was a shepherd, Jacob was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd, David was a shepherd. So they, there would have been real warmth towards sheep. So let's start there. We are sheep, but we're actually somebody's treasure that they've fought for. So I invite you for the next 30 minutes or so to suspend your objections to being a sheep. Can you lower your guard a bit and accept that the Bible is referring to you as a sheep and that it's for your good? So as I said, I'm continuing the I Am series today from John 10, and we're considering this somewhat mysterious statement of Jesus that I am the door. My three points are, I am the door, I am the door, I am the door. <laughs> so now, you may think, yikes, that sounds a bit repetitive, and you might start looking to see if you have reception to look up those sheep videos. <laughs> but actually, Jesus had to repeat himself in this passage. In verse 6, it said, the people didn't understand what he was saying. So Jesus, who is a much better preacher than I am, had to repeat himself. But I'm going to take my cue from him. And actually what Jesus did is he takes this gem and he just turns it in his hand. He, he helps us see the different facets of what does it mean to be the door. So I'm going to take my cues from him and we're going to explore this four-word declaration that is critically important for us to understand. All right, so first point is I am the door. This series considers the seven important I am statements of Jesus. And each of these statements, it serves a dual purpose. One is Jesus is making a divine claim. And second, he's helping us to understand what God is like. Every time Jesus repeats, I am, he's pointing his followers and disciples back to a moment that you may recall from the burning bush on Mount Sinai where God introduces himself to his people. In Exodus, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am was how God introduced himself to his people. The I am was the, the one that they followed out of slavery to be led to the promised land. The I am was the one that they, like sheep, followed out of this brutal slavery and bondage to slave masters that fleeced and slaughtered them. By the miraculous salvation of the I am, they were given a place. They were given identity. They were redeemed from slavery. With every I am statement that Jesus makes, he's claiming to be the one 
that Moses met on that mountain. This name, I am, can be a little bit abstract, though. God referring to himself as I am. It almost feels like a cropped thought, like Moses would have leaned forward and said, I am what? Or I am who? But think about the implications over the millennia of creation and mankind. God saying, I am, means that he exists unimpeachably, that he exists unchallenged, eternally, that there's no condition, no opposition, no enemy that can make him not. He is. I am, or Yahweh, is established on his eternal throne and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am is a claim to unchanging divine power and authority. So don't miss the power of I am coming out of Jesus' mouth. People up to that point were seeing glimpses of divinity in this man. They were hearing rumors. He was feeding thousands. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. And each time he declared, I am, he was underlining that he is God. His hearers actually knew the implications. There was one time he had an encounter with the Pharisees where he, he claimed to have seen Abraham. And the Pharisees at the time said, if you're less than 50 years old, how is it possible that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus' response was, before Abraham was, I am. It wasn't before Abraham was, I was. That would have declared eternity. But he said, before Abraham was, I am. He referred to himself as that one that saved his people. And then when the Roman soldiers encountered Jesus in Gethsemane and were searching for him, they said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am he. Does anybody know what happened to those grown-up Roman soldiers in their shields and armor? And they fell on their butts. He said, I am he. And the mere power, the power of that three words made them fall over. Jesus, every time he says, I am says, I am the one that you met, the one that saved you. The I am of the Old Testament and the I am of the New Testament are one. So my second point is, I am the door. And again, we always need to contextualize as we read so we can understand the implications of these analogies. So the door of the sheep would have been very familiar imagery. So at the time in the cities, there would have been walled sheep pens that shepherds would share to bring their sheep in at night so that the sheep could sleep in safety, safe from predators, safe from thieves, and actually safe from just wandering off. In Jesus' analogy, he is the door, we are the sheep, and there are thieves and robbers. So without any spiritual understanding, people would have immediately understood the division of outside and inside the sheep pen. I made a a table for us to look at. Outside the sheep pen, this is just purely physically speaking. Outside the sheep pen, the sheep would have been exposed, they would have been alone, they would have been hungry, and in all likelihood they would have been dead. Inside the sheep pen, they are protected in a flock, fed, and saved. 
So that's context that people would have understood without any spiritual connection. That's just physical understanding of, of context at the time. They would have intuitively understood the benefits of belonging to a shepherd and being secured inside a sheep pen. But Jesus gets more explicit on the, on the spiritual parallels. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and he'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So salvation, provision, life itself in abundance is available through this door. So let's look at each one of these things that he's provided through the door of Jesus Christ. First, he will be saved. First, we've got to ask, what does being saved have to do with any of my real-world practical needs? If I'm warm and fed and provisioned and healthy, relationally content, what does salvation actually provide to me? Where does Jesus fit in my Maslow's hierarchy of needs? We can be pretty happy in our lives, reasonably content day to day. We may find our need for Jesus in the periphery. It's an accessory to our finely tuned lives. While we might not, not put it so directly, in practice, Jesus is someone we ask for from when we have a particular uh, when we have a particular need or in moments of distress. We acknowledge we may need help sometimes, maybe strength or encouragement, but that doesn't actually fit what this passage says. This passage says that we need to be saved, that we will be saved. I was in the ocean this past summer with my seven-year-old daughter, and the surf was rough enough that I had to be right next to her. And every time a wave would come, she would grab my hand and say, help me, Dad. And every time the, the wave would pass, she would actually try to pull my hand away. She'd be like, I got it. And then the wave would come, help me, Dad. And then it was this repeated thing that as soon as she felt her need, she would reach out for my hand. And the reality was that Eliza would have drowned in the ocean had I not been there. So are you, this morning, flirting with Jesus' hand, holding it and taking it away when you feel you don't need help? Salvation has implication that we're in dire need. So what must we be saved from? Jesus offers salvation from sin, from death, and from hell. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible that sums up the darkness and the real despair of our need and the beauty of salvation is in Ephesians 2. So read along with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This verse says that we're a sheep in need of saving. We're, we're not mostly capable lions. We are helpless and even dead sheep. I'm sorry, but it is not possible to take the offense out of the good news. There is no good news without the reality of our actual dire need for a Savior. The good news is that there is a door. Yes. There's a door to salvation that is freely offered to those who are willing to walk through, though we only have our sin to contribute. There's no pre-qualification, no resume we have to build. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of Jesus being the door, says, you coal heavers who have, st have strayed in here, you squires from the country who have your pockets well lined, you poor people who have your pockets empty, you who have good character, you who would do better if you were to lose your present character, for they are of no good to you. My text is so broad that it shuts none of you out. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The fact is, it's, it's much harder to walk through this door if your shoulders are loaded with good works that you think will save you. The religious leaders at the time refused to walk through the door to salvation because they weren't willing to lay down the load of their self-righteous pride to walk through that door. If you are not saved this morning, lay down your sin. Lay down your good deeds. Lay down your shame. Lay down your pride and walk through the door of Jesus by believing. If this morning you have walked through the door already, remind yourselves, admire again the depths that your Savior went to to open the door to you. Remember again how you left your sin and your guilt and your death along with your prideful self-reliance at the door. Second, the door offers that we will go in and out and find pasture. So coming to Jesus means you put yourself under, you submit yourself to his tender leadership and provision for your needs. As a sheep, you may look at the broad country outside the sheep pen and think, there's limitless pasture out here. Why would I limit my opportunities for enjoyment and follow this guy into an enclosed sheep pen. It's true. Following Jesus does require us to walk through a door into a place of boundaries. But remember again, you're a sheep. It's good for sheep to have restraint. And in fact, the boundaries, as much to keep you from wandering into deep destructive places, it keeps the predators and the thieves away. If you choose to accept restraint, this says you will actually experience freedom. You will go in and out under the tender, watchful eye of a shepherd. And it says you will find pasture. Sheep with absolute freedom actually are more likely to find death in the mouth of a lion than they are to find pasture where they can eat. In our lives, what does this look like? It'll look like submitting our absolute sexual freedoms, including when and with whom and how we are satisfied. 
It'll look like submitting our finances to the Lord, our freedom of how we spend our money. It's going to look at submitting to his tender care, how we spend our time, how we entertain ourselves. And the Bible says even how we eat and how we drink. Are there categories of life that you're looking for pasture outside the restraint of submitting to Jesus? Following Jesus means putting our desire for absolute freedom under his loving restraint. This is where we find our greatest needs and desires are most satisfied. And through this door, it says we'll also have abundant life. In verse 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So to understand what Jesus is talking about, we actually have to rewind to chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, we learn that Jesus is speaking to an audience that includes a man that he had just healed, a group of Pharisees, and some other onlookers. Jesus had just healed a man that was born blind, and he healed him on the Sabbath. The religious leaders at the time highly objected to the fact that Jesus healed a man in violation of the Sabbath laws. This, what they saw of him was an infraction on Sabbath laws. And so what they were trying to do was to accuse Jesus and put him in a position where he had, he had sinned, is how they were, they were trying to position Jesus. These religious leaders were so intent on this that they went after the man that was just healed of his blindness. He was born blind. They brought in his parents to try to accuse him. And ultimately, they put this man out of the temple. So that's where we are. Is we have a man that was just put out of the temple. Jesus went and found him. And there happened to be the Pharisees that had just put this man out of the temple in, in the audience. So when Jesus refers to the thieves and the robbers in this passage, he's looking right in the eyes of the religious leaders that had just put this man out of, at the time, what was considered the presence of God. Now, how does this apply to us? Those religious leaders were fleecing, slaughtering the sheep, and had no care or concern for the actual well-being of the people of God. They loaded the sheep with burdens that they couldn't bear, and they didn't offer a hand to help. Of course, the application here is not to distrust every spiritual leader or that there's no such thing as a good spiritual leader. It does, however, apply to those that tragically manipulate God's people for their own gain. I read just this week a news article of a man, a pastor, who had stolen a million dollars above his salary from the tithes in his church. He's going to jail for 10 years for stealing from his people, from the people of God. We would be naive and suffer from very short-term memory loss if this didn't echo with many recent instances of tragic leadership failures in the church across the world. The application here is to only follow leaders that direct you to the abundant life of Jesus. I would also plead with you to pray for us as your leaders that we would always do that by the power of God. Lord, Lord, please protect the leaders of Monument Church from wandering hearts that we may always and only ever point your people to the abundant life of Jesus. Okay, third, I am the door. 
So we tend not to like absolutes. It's easier to accept, isn't it, that God is a liberal God that pats every one of us on the head and he wipes our runny nose and says, don't worry about your sin. A God that expects only what we can reasonably achieve. He understands that we're all weak and waves us all through the pearly gates, through a wide highway. It's difficult to imagine good people in our lives being grouped with those rejected at the gate because they don't want to enter through the door. Honestly, in my preparation, I kept, I kept landing here, and I didn't want to. Sincerely, I, I, I started and stopped this message like three times, and it always stopped here. Because culturally, it's hard to say that there is one way. We live in a culture that wants every way to be equally validated and equally praised. But that's not what this says. In most categories of life, we understand that there's a level of access that you get depending on what you're willing to pay and who you're with. I recently attended a concert with Mary, my wife, with my brother and my sister-in-law. At Nationals Park, we entered this huge stadium and scanned our electronic ticket at the gate. We went over and picked up two wristbands at Will Call. The ticket, the ticket attendant said, don't lose either one of these. This gets you into your section. So as we walked into the heart of Nationals Park Stadium, I looked up and I saw the stadium filled with tens of thousands of people. We kept walking past section after section until we ended up right in front of the stage. It was awesome. I saw my favorite 90s band performing in front of 40,000 people, and I just missed Chad Smith's uh, <laughs> drumstick. My access to this was given because my brother paid for my ticket. We were with him, so his ticket scan got us the wristbands. The wristbands gave us access through the gates. My access was paid, and because I was standing next to my brother, we got all of these perks. Payment and association. This analogy, though, falls short of what we're talking about because everyone outside of the pit where, where we were still enjoyed an amazing concert. For this analogy to be more accurate, it would be as if we walked past all of these sections with a double wristband right to the front of the stage and a giant soundproof wall went up behind us. It's impossible to miss the exclusivity of this statement of Jesus' claim being the door. He specifically did not say, I am a door. If he said a door, this would have allowed for many doors to choose from, to get into the same place. This would seem much more accepting and liberal. Isn't whatever you choose fine? Isn't whatever you authentically feel just another door? No. There's only one combination of wristbands that allowed me into our section and there's only one door to salvation. Yes. Payment must be made. We must have the right association. We must be with Jesus. But here's the good news. This verse says, if any man. Yes. 
If any man enters by me, he will be saved. The payment and the association through Christ is freely offered to those willing to enter. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That was the payment. So that in him, our association, we might become the righteousness of God, saved. The church has generally not handled this well, to be honest. We've treated the exclusive claim of Jesus as a reason to congregate with other Christians and draw impenetrable lines around our comforts. We can be judgmental and isolated. We can avoid difficult relationships because it's messy and we'd rather divide ourselves from the world. Family, our appeal to those who have not received Christ Jesus may still give them access through the door. Rather than making us isolate into safe Christian communities, let this exclusivity make us weep for those that are lost. Pray for those that still have time. Reach out with all the love and compassion in our hearts that those who are seeking life from a door may still be saved through the door. Yes. Yes. I'm trusting that God's voice is speaking to our ears, the ears of His sheep, and that you know the sound of His voice, because it says that in this verse. It says, The sheep hear His voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. This is not a general call. He knows your name this morning. And he calls you. He calls you by name this morning to respond. I believe that there are three responses. I, I felt this yesterday as I was preparing, that the Lord wanted me to identify these three groups. And I believe that the Lord is speaking to you. First, God has called your name to follow him through the door to salvation. I believe there are people here that are hearing the voice of God speaking your name and calling you to walk through that door to salvation. Maybe you've knocked on the door. Maybe you've admired the door and you've seen the handle and you've You've admired the construction of the door. You actually think it's a good door. But Jesus is calling you this morning to walk through the door. Jesus says, he who enters by the door will be saved. If that's the case, let today be the day of salvation. Second category is those who have already walked through the door... But God is calling your name to accept the restraint of following Christ. Maybe this morning as I listed a few of those things that is a part of being in that sheep pen and, and finding the pasture that, that he leads us to. Maybe something hit home and you need to submit again to him today. And the third is that God is calling some of us today to have courage to point people to the door. 
you've believed that compassion and love means masking the offense of the gospel, and thus you've robbed it of its power. So I think God has put people on your mind today that you are to compassionately and courageously point to Jesus alone. So, my fellow sheep, each one of these responses that God, I believe, is speaking to you requires courage. But in, res in responding courageously, listen to the other ways that the Bible describes us, not just as sheep. It says we're a chosen race. It says we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen.